0: You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast, brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and supported by the Western Weekender. For three decades, Penrith and the Blue Mountains have turned to the Western Weekender. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Here is your host, Jonathan robinson
1: Lees. Michaela Hinckley was born and raised in Penrith and was surrounded by sports and adventure from a young age. Her career as a professional cricketer started in the summer of 2015-16, earning a contract with the New South Wales Breakers, along with a spot on the Sydney Thunder roster for the inaugural WBBL season. Whilst it has not always been easy, with many challenges along the way, Michaela has embraced the journey. Taking her cricketing skills to four different WBBL clubs and two different state teams reflects Michaela's willingness to take chances and back herself. Through the ride, Michaela has developed a wholesome perspective on life, fostered a sense of resilience and tackled every opportunity that has come her way. Michaela joins us virtually for the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Michaela, welcome to the Passion and Perspective podcast.
0: Thanks, John. I'm absolutely stoked to be joining you.
1: Michaela, you're a member of the Brisbane Heat side that has won back-to-back WBBL titles. When you've been standing there celebrating with the team, what has that meant to you? That's a really good
0: question. It's it's meant a lot. There's there's a plethora of um, emotion that comes to you when you're you're holding up a, a WBBL title. Um, I guess for last year's season, I was a part of an integral part of that group. For you know, I played. I think out of sixteen games, I played. 15. So um, to be able to say that I played a big part in that team was, was awesome because I don't think I'd ever experienced that before in another team. So I guess like obviously that year I just moved up to Queensland and um, I was born and raised in Penrith. So um, it was a big move for me to kind of move my whole life up there, be away from family. Um, so it just made it all worthwhile. I just had this massive sense of, wow, this is worthwhile. This is worth it. I feel like whilst I was born and raised in Penrith, I feel like I'm home and I feel like I'm settled and, and I felt like I just repped the rewards of, of taking an, another risk um, in my career and trying another, another new, um, another new location, I guess.
1: You mentioned risk there. Do you, do you believe that in sport or life generally that you do need to take chances and, and seize opportunities that come your way to progress?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, um, if you're not taking risks in sport and in life, you end up being really fearful. So I guess for me, you know, I, I take a massive interest in, in, um, you know, the financial world and investments and the stock market and the property market. So for me, like I I get really excited about risk. It's like this, um, it's like a challenge. Yeah. I'm always, I'm all, I always want to take risks. I always want to be challenged. And, um, yeah, I definitely think it's a prominent part of being an elite athlete to take risks because you're never going to actually know what you're capable of and um, whether you succeed or whether you fail, you, you know, if you never actually take that risk, you won't know. So, um, yeah, I guess, I guess that's my, my outlook on that.
1: We've spoken with uh, fellow Penrith cricketer, Josh Layla, on the Passion and Perspective podcast and Josh playing in the, the men's BBL has often liked the idea of playing for a different club opens his mind to different ways of playing cricket and, and also different approaches to life. Have you found that, you know, you've been with four clubs now in the WBBL that it's expanded both your cricketing view, but also your, your life view? A
0: hundred and ten percent I think, um, I think I've learnt something new about myself every time I've been in a different environment and will continue to, um, you know, in sport and in life, but, um, yeah, I, I definitely think the move to Queensland in particular has been a really life-changing experience for me thus far in my life. I'm only 22, so I don't know how, how, um, how much emphasis I can really put on that at the moment. But um, it's enabled, uh, the, the move to Queensland has enabled me to enjoy the game and enjoy life and enjoy the balance Obviously, having Ash, Ashley Nofke as our coach and um, Scott Presswidge as our assistant coach, some amazing cricketers. Um, you know, I, everywhere I've been, I've had some amazing um, ex-cricketers coach me, but their perspective on on life and cricket and them being interlocking parts of, it, of the journey has been awesome. It's really cool. We're in an environment that really encourages us to engage with life outside of cricket. And I think that was really important for me. I probably hadn't been in an environment where... I knew Michaela was outside of cricket so to be able to be somewhere now where I can love life for everything that it is um is pretty awesome
1: that balance is there a particular player you mentioned Ashley and Scott who have been a big influence but is there a particular player that you've been able to look up to and see? you know they've got a great balance they they really look after themselves on and off the field and you know reap the rewards of that
0: it's actually funny. I, the, the first person that comes to mind when you said that um, was actually Kirby Short. She was our captain last year. Um, she was also a deputy principal um, at a school. And, you know, um, I think if, if she heard me saying that, she'd beg to differ that she balanced it well. But I think she actually really did. She gave, um, you know, I can't so much speak to what she gave to a job outside of cricket, but she definitely gave um, her all to cricket and, you know, she encouraged me to do the same, um, but have a balance and enjoy the balance in life. And mine is Georgia Redmayne. She's obviously a doctor and um, absolutely smashing it in the big bash at the moment. So, you know, she's, she's, a very funny character i really enjoyed having conversations with um with dr redmayne because um, you always learn something new about her you always learn something new about something (laughs) and i think the core of that is that she is just genuinely one of the most happiest people i've ever met and um you know she's working her ass off whether it's as a doctor or as a cricketer She just has such an amazing perspective on life and it's, you know, I envy her at times. I'm like, how do you do this? And I just feel like you never get stressed and how, how?
1: And as we speak, Michaela, you are in the WBBL hub at Sydney Olympic Park. Whilst it's been living in close quarters with your, your teammates and the other teams, have you been able to embrace that opportunity to really sit down with players like Georgia and just pick their brain and talk and really, I guess, really see everyone let their guard down?
0: Yeah, I think I think we've all kind of been forced to do that. Um, you know, I actually think that I should be doing it more than what I have, but um, I definitely think this situation forces us to to sit down with one another another and gain some insight um, because you know we we
1: are pretty much in each other's pockets. The WBBL by nature has been pioneering. You know, as a league, it's it's been, had an exponential rise. But even this year, it's been the first league domestically to, you know, roll out a full schedule of games, albeit very condensed. What has it meant to you to be a part of this pioneering group? You know, yeah, there's been pioneers before you, but this is the next generation of of trailblazers in, in women's sport and inspiring young girls and boys to play the game. What has that meant to you? I've never actually thought of it like that. <laughs> so thank you for, for
0: highlighting that. But I guess... Um, as you say that, the first thing I, I think of is just, I just feel really humbled to be able to be a part of that. Um, you know, very humbled and very thankful to um, the women that actually pioneered the game before us that didn't have the opportunity that to be paid and that didn't um, have the opportunity to play in front of crowds or, or um, you know, play T20 cricket in a competition like the Big Bash. Um, I think, you know, you players like Lisa Stelaker, Alex Blackwell, um, even going back to Karen Walton um, and Belinda Clark, like they, I think they are the real pioneers and knowing that there's always going to be an amount of pride we we need to take into where our game's at and and also be encouraged by where our game's at. And, yeah, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is definitely just being so humbled by the opportunity to to be on this platform playing cricket and inspire young people like i've said this so many times but you know when i was a kid women's cricket wasn't on tv and you hear it so often now um and now for for kids just to grow up thinking you know i, I saw a tweet the other day i can't remember who tweeted it or what happened but someone was sitting with their daughter and their daughter turned around and asked her um oh they're watching the big bash the wbbl and she turned around and she goes mom do boys play cricket too? Because <laughs> we were on TV and we've been on TV so often. So um, just little things like that. Like it's literally changing societal societal norms, like gender norms. Like it's awesome and I actually love that and I froth that for, you know, the next generation of, of kids coming through. No matter if you're male or female, the opportunity is going to be the same. And I think that's what excites me the most um, about being given this platform to, inspire other people
1: and younger people i think that's such a good point michaela and it's an interesting one again again i've mentioned it on the podcast before but for me personally my first cricket experience was going to watch my older sister play in the under 12 Springwood cricket club team as one of two girls uh, and the first girls to ever play for the club and until you see something in front of you you don't know about it so you know for me to go see my sister play opened my eyes to the game and, and like you said it's opening opportunities for everyone of all ages which is hugely exciting and Michaela you were as you mentioned you were born and raised in penrith in western sydney what was your childhood like
0: my childhood i look back on my childhood and i just look at myself as the most imaginative crazy um aspiring kid ever <laughs> i was. i'm i am one of um Four kids, I'm the only girl. Um, I sit second in that lineup. Um my brother, my older brother Chris, he was very sporty. Um, still is still still is. Um, but I always looked up to him and and wanted to be running around in the backyard with him and even dad and you know, I just I think I think I was a bit of a boy and um just wanted to be a boy in that in that day and age, like when there was no girls' sport. Um, I just wanted to, you know, run out the back and play footy with Dad and Chris and, and you know, play backyard cricket and jump in the pool and just very adventurous upbringing. Um, my parents encouraged me to to dream and encouraged me to aspire to be great. Um, I mean, there's so much in this world, even back then before social media and, and the rest of it, um, there's so much in this world that can get us down as people and there's so much in this world that... Is shocking and is wrong and is not nice. But, you know, all we have is our aspiration. And I think commitment's another thing that my parents really drilled into me from a young age. You know, I remember um, when I was, me and my older brother Chris, obviously being very sporty, we hinted once that we might like to be, to try dancing to mum. And so she took that and ran with it and signed us up for dancing. Um, So we were doing Irish dancing, ballet, jazz, hip hop, you name it. We literally did every form of dancing for a year. We got like a week or two into the dancing lessons and we're like, mum, we hate this. This sucks. Can we stop? And she was like, "Nope, you've committed to it. You've got to finish. Um, so, and there was other sports I took up like tennis and swimming where it was the exact same thing where I was like, mom, I don't want to do this anymore. She's like, well, you have to finish. Um, yeah. And, and I guess my parents too, they've been um, married this year for December the 1st for 30 years. So the commitment that they've shown us just through their parenting and their relationship has been amazing. So in a nutshell, um, that's what my upbringing has been like. Um, growing up in in Penrith and I think Penrith is a very humble humble place to grow up in too um you know we we get a lot of um we get a lot of flack for living out west I think from the uh inner city mob but um, it's definitely I think I think it's I'll, I'll always always appreciate where I came from and I'll always be proud to say that I was born and raised in Penrith
1: you mentioned the the adventurous side that you had in your childhood and that opportunity to to explore and to learn and you know I'm sure to fall over to pick yourself up how important do you think that is for for any child growing up to to have that freedom and not be pushed too far in one direction but to have doors open for them
0: yeah definitely I think our generation or my generation so millennials actually get um, a lot of a lot of crap put on them for, for being adventurous and for dreaming and and being told and brought up to be allowed to do that. But I think, you know, I've learnt so much from my core values in life that my parents taught me and and there's been a lot of setbacks in my life and career. I'm currently in the middle of a setback now. I'm happy to talk about that in more detail if you want to. But um, I think, you know, it's always about perspective and it's always about... Um, knowing that you love what you're doing and and knowing that you've got people around you supporting you. And I think that's one thing I've been fortunate enough in life to have is is with every knockback knock I've had since I can remember my parents have been there, my brothers have been there, I've had an amazing support network. Um, I now have an awesome partner who's um, been absolutely awesome for me throughout this process. And I think they've never pushed me to continue to pursue anything in my life. And I think that's been the most important thing. Whilst I've, I've been very um, encouraged by these people in my life. I've, I've always made a decision for myself. Hey, cricket's what I want to do. Or, Hey, a business degree is what I want to do. Or, Hey, you know, um, I want to do this or do this. And I actually have an idea of something new every day that I want to do. So <laughs> I've never actually been forced into making a decision. I've always made decisions for myself and, I think that's the key at the end of the day, especially for kids that maybe like mid to late teen years that are a bit lost, don't know, you know, they wanna they want a professional career in sport or they want a professional career in anything, um, is know why you have that aspiration and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Um you're always going to be the in control of your own decision and your own fate so i think you know it's it's the whole saying you can lead the horse to water but whether they drink it is up to them so um you know i've definitely been led to water for a for a mountain of things and sometimes i haven't drank the water but other times i've absolutely bathed and um you know (laughs) scalded the water (laughs) so yeah i think it's all about um Taking, taking knowledge that you, you have the ability to control what you want in life and that's the most important thing and the people supporting you um, is also important.
1: It's such an important perspective, Michaela, I think to, to, to understand that and controlling your own fate, I, I think is one that we're probably, we're probably guilty of, of not recognising, especially at a young age. I think we often think things are paved out for us, but you know, life throws adversity at you and you've got to deal with it as well. And along those same lines, do you look back with, you know, as a childhood full of adventure, sport, family, support, do you look back fondly on those years? Yeah,
0: I do. Sometimes I wish I could go back to that four-year-old um, playing tackle footy in the backyard with my brother, bowling bounces at his head um, in the backyard. Just no fear. I had no fear in those days. And, and I guess that's why I was so adventurous and... um I do look back fondly on them because I just feel like nothing could touch me in those days. Nothing. Like I was invincible. I was just this little rascal running around um, and nothing could upset me. Nothing could touch me. And I think, you know, some days I do revel in it and I go, Oh my gosh, like I was actually, I used to not care. Like how amazing is that? The ability when you're so young to, not have the understand enough understanding to care (laughs) Um, i think that's such an amazing thing and it's beyond my um you know beyond my knowledge of why that is but it's just you know it's it's something i i I am pretty fond of looking back on and, and i'm very grateful for the for the kid i was allowed to be and um for the path my parents helped me construct um in those days
1: Growing up in Penrith, you look at some of the names, even just recently, there's you know, yourself, Hannah Darlington, Nomi and Jess Fox, Pat Cummins, Josh Layla, like the, the sporting uh, crops, are, they just keep coming and coming and coming. Why is it that you think the, the, Nepean, you know, the Penrith Blue Mountains region just seems to churn out athletes time after time?
0: I think, like I said, I think it's just, hum- it's a humble place. It really is. As, uh, I know that there's probably a lot of um, inner city people that want to rip on us and, and and the type of people or perceptions they might have of um, people that were born and raised in Penrith. But, yeah, I take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> um, I really just think that it is, it's, it's, Penrith is a place on the river, um, you know, the one thing that connects every Penrith resident is that Nepean River. It's that, um, you know, the Hawkesbury River, the Nepean River, whatever you want to call it. You know, it's such a, it's such a massive source and a massive connection to our community and, um, you know, there's something very humbling about being close to a, a source of water. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd love someone to challenge me on that. Maybe sometimes I would have preferred to have a Bondi Beach kind of um, outlook walking out of my back door at home in Penrith but um a river was good enough but yeah I just think it's like a fan I honestly if someone excels or succeeds and they're from Penrith I'm just like oh my gosh yes go Penrith every time Pat Cummings comes up on the tv I'm like Penrith boy you get it you get it um so yeah like there's just the pro I think well for me anyway there's a definite pride of, of coming from Penrith and there always will be you know I consider myself a bit of a Queenslander now but Anytime someone brings up Penrith, um, I'm just like, oh my gosh, yes. And it was funny, I was doing an appearance. I'd flown out to Townsville um, for an appearance with the Brisbane Heat. And um, the community development officer um, that had a role similar to what you had with the Sydney Thunder, Jono, um, you know, he was asking some questions and he was like, oh yeah, I've lived out in Townsville for this long. It's been great, blah, 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 blah. blah. I was like, oh, that's awesome. And he didn't know that I was from new south wales he just assumed that um i was born and raised in brisbane and um yeah we got chatting and i don't know how it came up but um he said oh yeah you know i'm from sydney originally well not really sydney i was from western sydney and um i said "Oh, will say born and raised out in western sydney he's like yeah yeah great place you know we were just speaking very vaguely on on western sydney and then um I was like, oh, so whereabouts in Western Sydney were you from? And and this guy was like, oh, oh a place called the Blue Mountains. Like, um, Wentworth Falls. And I just said, oh, my gosh, I lived in Cranebrook. Like, I literally lived in the foot of the mountains. I love the Blue Mountains. I was born and raised in Penrith. And we just like, it was like, oh, my gosh, it was like this instant connection. Which is awesome, which is so awesome. And I think that's why we have so many people excelling from out that way because it's like a family and it's, it's, it's a humbling family. It's a humbling place to live. This is the Passion of Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media.
1: For three decades, Penrith and the
0: surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, The Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy
1: every Friday. Michaela, you first played cricket at the age of three in the old Kanga cricket days, and then your first kind of game of cricket was as a six-year-old for Windsor Leagues. Do you recall that feeling of and the love that first came with playing the game?
0: Yeah, I think, um, like I said before, I just wanted to do what Chris was doing all the time, my older brother. Um, So I probably shouldn't have been playing Kanga cricket at the age of three, but... um, The lady who was running it um, and actually just said to my mum, you know what, don't worry, she'll be right. Like, look at her, she wants to get out there. I was a little rascal. I was running around on the side anyway, probably throwing dirt around and rolling in it. (laughs) So, you know, I I got in there and it was like this, like, sense of accomplishment that I was like, I am so young and I'm here and I'm, like, throwing the ball and I'm catching the ball. So I just felt like it was such an enjoying thing. And it it was just so much fun because I would Being able to do something that I'd watched my brother do and I was like, I can do it too. And then um, I remember, I don't know why, I still don't know why till this day, but my brother's Windsor leagues under 10 side was short one time and I was there watching and the coach came over and said, Oh, you know, like we, we're short, we're going to have to forfeit. And little, you know six-year-old me turned to mum I can play mum let me go out there and mum was like no no no. you're too young blah 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 and then I was like oh and I was like really upset and then the coach for Windsor Leagues was like oh um that's okay we can just let her feel like you know that's fine so mum was like oh okay like if she's not gonna bat and she's not gonna bowl like she'll be right in the field she won't get hurt kind of thing and so all I did that first game was field, but for some reason I had the time of my life. I don't know why. Um, but fielding was, um, really fun for me back then. <laughs> it still is fun, but, um, yeah, it, it, I went back the next week and they were happy to have me in, in the team again and again and again. So, um, yeah, I guess, I guess for me, it was just that sense of belonging to something as a kid and, and being a part of something as a kid. Um, And I think for me, like my hand-eye coordination was relatively good. So to be able to use that, you know, I wasn't always the smartest kid at school. So I always felt a little bit, um, you know, even though I was probably in kindergarten year one at the time, I was just kind of like, oh, what am I doing here (laughs) sometimes as a six-year-old? Whereas on the cricket field, it was like this instant sense of belonging. And same with soccer growing up. It was like this instant sense of belonging. And I could finally utilise some skills, some natural talent that I had in that space. so, yeah, yeah, that, that's definitely the first, um, the first kind of feeling I got taking the cricket field was like, wow, I feel like I belong here. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: Do you, do you consider what might have happened if Chris's team, your older brother's team, weren't short that weekend, if they had a full team and you didn't get that chance to run out? Do you think you would have uncovered cricket as a sport at some point or there was a bit of a, a moment in time and has kind of paved the rest of your life?
0: That's a really good question. And I've never been asked that before. Um, but I'm glad you asked that it because it's made me think about it. <laughs> um, um, I don't know, honestly, um, still to this day, I want to go and play NRL. <laughs> um, that's, that's something that I joke about with my dad. He really doesn't want me to play, but <laughs> um, I was playing soccer at the time. Um, yeah, I think, I think I would have lived a very different life if I've never played cricket. It's a very interesting game and it has very interesting twists and turns and you can take a lot of analogies, cricket analogies into life. So I don't know, I don't know if I would have ever played cricket. I'm, I would strongly suggest that I would have some, at some point anyway, because I was, I think I was playing indoor cricket and I was playing in the backyard and everything I tried, I just wanted to do. So a big, leap of faith guess would say that yeah I would have probably played cricket anyway um when and how I don't know but um yeah I think I could have done anything really at the end of the day um it was just cricket that I fell in love with that on at that moment on that day and and you know like any relationship it's it's been a bit rocky but um I still love it I still love it
1: and were there any idols any specific idols you had growing up in in the early years watching cricket
0: um, yeah, watching cricket, um a bit of a um Adam Gilchrist bandwagoner. yeah, he was just exciting to watch, and I think that's what's encouraged kids my age to be so um, fearless when you bat and in t twenty, like um we grew up watching him bat, and people like Andrew Simons and Matthew Hayden and um, I'm rattling off the Queenslanders now, but <laughs> um, um, yeah, being able to grow up watching. They, those cricketers and the way that they played the game, um, you know, my earliest memories um, were watching Shane Warne bowl and it was a very dynamic, I, I can't remember an era of cricket before that, obviously I would have been not even thought of, but <laughs> um, um, just the type of cricket that was played that we got to look at growing up um, was fearless and yeah people players like Adam Gilchrist were a massive um influence of mine when I when I'd go out and, and play on a weekend I had the puma bats I had puma everything I just wanted to be him at the time like I said there was no real women's cricket around and I think as I got older I started to realize that hey the cricket play women play cricket as well um and, you know, naturally gained some um, idols in that space, like Leah Poulton and Alex Blackwell, who I was fortunate. Both of them I I ended up playing with eventually anyway, which is
1: still to this day, I'm like, well, that's crazy. Michaela, through your early teenage years and starting to to form a bit of a career in cricket, did you have ambitions to make it to the big time at that stage?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think um, the moment I you know, started playing cricket and soccer and any sort of leading into my teenage years and, and when I started playing representative and state cricket, um, yeah, there was definitely, a, a, that's when I probably started to feel the pressure and probably before I even knew what pressure was. Um, so having an outlet like sport and having an outlet like cricket really helped me excel. It really gave me a platform to excel and, and know that I could excel in something. So, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely started to have serious vision leading to those teenage years.
1: And you were involved in a number of New South Wales underage teams and then in 2015-16 you were in a New South Wales Breakers contract and also a contract to play an inaugural WBBL with Sydney Thunder. When you cast your mind back to how Oval, the very first game of WBBL in your hometown, at your home ground... What was that experience like? You know, there was over a thousand people there. Um, It was nationally broadcast. What did that mean to you?
0: Um, It was unlike any other feeling I'd experienced before um, playing cricket. And I think I've since experienced similar things. Um, I don't think I'll ever experience something the same as that or um, in comparison to that. But... I remember rocking up that day and all the boys from the cricket club were helping set up. Um, the club itself were really, um, really excited to have the game there. And obviously Jono, you being part of the club previously as well, it's just like a family. Um, so I remember the mayor of Penrith at the time was there and it just like, it was the first time I'd experienced being a professional cricketer. So to be able to have that experience at Howl Oval in the first ever game of the Women's Big Bash League as a 16 or 17 year old. Wow, that is something that no one can ever take from me. To this day, I think I still don't believe that because I don't know where that's happened before. But um, yeah, just utter excitement, utter, you know, disbelief. And I think it gave me a real platform to understand that cricket was moving in a direction that this was gonna be a normality you know, not so much playing at your home ground in um, big bash games, but just in a sense of being able to showcase your skill at this level. So it was a feeling unlike um, anything I'll probably ever experience again, um, being able to do that.
1: That first year across both Thunder and the New South Wales Breakers, who did you learn the most from that season?
0: Alex Blackwell, I'd have to say, hands down. Um and also, as a player, Alex Blackwell, but I also learned a lot from Leah Poulton, who just retired, who probably retired too early and probably should have still been playing, but didn't to give younger kids an opportunity to, to, to play. I learned a lot from both of them. Alex is a very dynamic leader, she's a very positive, optimistic leader, and she definitely saw something in me that I probably didn't see in myself to um, enable me to be picked in that first. First game and the first couple of games, for that matter. I, I definitely didn't understand what pressure was at that that state um, at that time in my career, that very early time in my career. And she also encouraged me not to not to want to know what that was like, or or she just she just really encouraged me to lap up the experience and to back myself. But aside from that, watching her play and watching her go about her game was amazing like she you know is one of the best Australian cricketers of all time um the way that she batted is unlike anyone that I've really ever seen um previously and the way that she used to think about the game whether that was too much or not enough um, it was um it was dynamic and as a young kid you look you look at that and you go oh my gosh she's she takes this game so seriously like I'm just here having fun, <laughs> but, but she's here. She thinks about it so much and, and she's so good at thinking about it so much. She's so analytical in thinking about it and her perspective on it is amazing. And then she goes out there and she scores fifties and wins this game. It's like, this is amazing. Um, so I think, I think having someone like her lead the team just made me probably understand the work, like obviously through her career, she would have been, part of that era that had to pay to play in the Australian cricket team. Um, So someone with that amount of perspective on the game that enjoyed playing the game like they were a little kid at the age of 30-odd, was amazing to see as a seventeen-year-old because you kind of think I've literally got like almost twenty years still in this <laughs> in this game. They're looking at the way that she takes it head-on, so um, um, yeah, I guess I guess that that was really awesome to kind of look up to her, and then obviously have Leah as a coach. And I learned so much about skill and cricket in that first year from those people.
1: When you think back those two names you mentioned, Alex and Leah, but you're also training and playing alongside Elise Perry, Alyssa Healy, all these household names. Did you have a sense as a 17-year-old that you'd made it, that the the world was at your feet?
0: Um, No, I didn't actually, and I probably should have. I wish I did. I'd been told that. I'd been told numerous times by my coaches, by my family, that the world was at my feet. I think still to this day, I don't believe that. And I feel really selfish in saying that. But at the same time, it's probably the reality um, for a lot of people in this sport. And I think I've put an expectation on myself to think that a lot. So uh, I'm going to answer that by saying um, that I was just playing it because I loved it and I didn't understand otherwise. And then, you know, I probably... I probably wasn't. I was definitely ready, skill-wise, to to be at that level. Looking back, but mentally, I definitely wasn't. And I think still mentally now, I'm still learning. Um, and you know, that's not going to be the case for every for everyone. You know, I look at the 17 year olds currently playing Big Bash, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, these kids are amazing. I couldn't I couldn't do that at that age. Um, you know, so I think. I think sometimes I still do struggle to think, Hey, I've got the world at my feet and I've actually got nothing to lose. And, um, especially at times like this, when I'm in a hub, it's like, you know, there's a lot of negativity about negativity, about being in this situation, this current situation. And often you do forget that you're in control of your destiny and it's a bit contradicting to what I was saying before. Um, so I guess going back to that, like, um, I didn't think I had the world at my feet because I wasn't satisfied at that age. I wasn't satisfied that I was the cricketer or the person that I wanted to be at. And I'm still not satisfied, but I'm going to say that that's a very healthy thing. Um, It's also okay for people that have been in my situation to go, yeah, I've got the world at my feet. Like I'm going to grab that with both hands. And I think I definitely did grab that with both hands. I probably just was and still am unsatisfied and ready to, um, to continue to learn and grow as a person and a
1: cricketer. And that learning and growth has um, is, is continued on your journey. As we mentioned, you, you've played for four clubs, you know, Sydney Thunder, Perth Scorchers, Hobart Hurricanes and Brisbane Heat. How have you gone about approaching different styles of cricket you know, under different coaches? What has that meant for your game specifically?
0: I think for me, I've looked at every, every opportunity as an opportunity to grow as a player and a person, like I just said. And I think um, I've really just looking back on the experiences I've had, I've, I've lent into that wholeheartedly every time. Um, you know, I see the Tasmania, the, the Hobart experience is such a valuable experience because that was a time in my career that I wasn't enjoying cricket. And I literally got a call from the coach. I wasn't actually going to go down there and play. I was going to be an injury replacement player. I decided not to play Big Bash that year. Um, And, you know, I remember being on the phone to her. I just said to her, look, this is um, Sally-Ann Briggs. She's still the coach. But I just said to her, I'm like, I'm just not enjoying my cricket. I've got to think about this. I don't know whether it's what I want to do. And I just remember her kind of turning around and saying, look, Michaela, I understand where your head's at at the moment. Um, There is absolutely no pressure on you coming down here. But if you do, I just want you to enjoy the game. I just want you to have fun. Um, And there is literally no pressure on you. So, you know, if you want to come down, come down. If you don't want to, don't. But I definitely think you should. <laughs> and I think you should with the, with the um, ambition to have fun, not to six, not to perform. Um, so I did that. I, I kind of thought about it for a day and I rang it back and I said, yeah, look, I'm ready to have some fun. Let's do it. And I had a bit of a, a I had a really fun time down there. I really did. I probably still didn't play the cricket that I was capable of at that time. I definitely showed glimpses of it, but it was a real interesting point in my career because I realised that I did love the game again and I realised that I could have fun and perform at the same time. And I think fun comes before performance. Appreciation for the game comes before performance. Um, If you're not appreciating the game, you're not going to, you're not going to perform. I'll tell you that right now. Um, So I think that experience definitely is an opportunity that I went in just take me, take me for everything. (laughs) Um, I'll just do this. I've got nothing to lose. Um, Whereas I think as my opportunities went on at Sydney Thunder and, and as I got the opportunity in Perth, I just, I wasn't sure of what I was doing. I wasn't sure of the type of player I was meant to be. I put so much expectation on myself to be this player that I wasn't ready to be. And I wasn't mentally, I was probably skill wise ready, but I just didn't have the, I didn't back myself. I was, you know, struggling so much with self-doubt in and outside of cricket. So, you know, I was just very lost and just didn't, I lost, I lost the joy that I, I lost the love and the joy that I found that day that I took the field for Windsor Leagues as a six-year-old. And that Hobart experience helped me to gain it back. And um, I've continued to be encouraged up here in Queensland to do the same thing. So, yeah, every opportunity has been really different um, and I, like I said, I've really tried to lean into every opportunity I've been given and I'm so incredibly thankful for every opportunity that I've been given. So, yeah, yeah, that's probably how I sit with those opportunities. <laughs> I've said opportunity 27 times.
1: <laughs> it's been an incredible career personally, but also the teams you've been a part of. And you've gone on to win three premierships in five years I don't have the science to back this up over data. Do you think you've won the most premierships out of any player in the WBBL?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Um, off the top of my head, I think I might be equal with some people. I definitely have been a part of, oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know the stats behind it, but that's interesting. <laughs> I've been very lucky to be in some really awesome teams. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, potentially, Potentially, but that's, was, that's pretty exciting.
1: Was there a common ingredient, do you think, in those three teams? You know, one at Thunder, two at Brisbane. Was there a common ingredient that you think led to the success of those teams?
0: Yes, and I think they're very similar. I think that first year in Thunder, we had nothing to lose. We were the underdogs of the competition. We weren't meant to win. We pretty much nearly lost the final, but we found a way, and that was a key key theme of our season was find a way like this is going to be hard. This experience is new, but we're going to, we're all going to make a pact and we're all going to find a way to, um, to win and to enjoy the game. Um, And I think contrastingly uh, playing for the Brisbane heat, it was the same kind of thing where the underdogs were probably the most underperforming team. There is, Um, we've got the best team on paper, um, but we don't perform. Um, And, you know, People that we come up against normally say, "Oh well, you know, if you get on top of them, they'll just crack." And we did every season before that. Um, we would just crack, but I think composure is a massive, massive element to to this group that I'm in right now, and that's definitely led to um, led to the wins and, and belief, self belief in in well belief in yourself, and then belief in in the process. Um, you know, especially this year, we've had a was currently sitting second on the ladder we had a few rough defeats um, and like everybody else in this competition, we had a massive 16week preseason where we didn't really play cricket. So we've had to just back our skills um, and you know I think that's what we did last year too when we won is we just backed ourselves and we backed each other. So I think they're the key ingredients to a winning a winning team, basically. This is the Passion of Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au
1: or find your copy every Friday. Michaela, you took, as you alluded to, you took a break from cricket in 2017. What did that mean for your life outside of cricket? You know, what were you able to, um, to recognise during that time?
0: Um, I definitely recognised in that time that I was struggling mentally. I'd been diagnosed that year with severe depression and anxiety. I was heavily medicated, and... <laughs> um, yeah I was in a very dark place um and everything was an effort um people that have suffered severe depression anxiety would um concur that it's it's a very taxing very very dark place to be in and as a what would I have been a 20 year old I just I was very lost I didn't I was looking for myself it was like I was in a I was in a dark room it's like when you you need to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And so turning lights on, you just feel yourself, your way to the bathroom. It's like I'd woken up in the middle of the night in a dark room. I wasn't motivated to turn the light on. So I was just like blindly looking for in the dark, where's Michaela? Like, what am I? Who am I? Um, sometimes I still find myself in that headspace, which is okay as well. That's very important. But I really struggled in that mental element of who I am. Um, And I learned a lot about support networks and I learned a lot about having hard conversations with yourself. And yeah, I guess I turned into a totally different person to what I explained I was when I was a kid earlier. Um, This adventurous, excited, ambitious kid. I was just every opposite you can come up with from that. That's what I was. Um, And so I battled with that. And so I gave up something that, you know, deep down, I, I still loved at the time, I didn't know it, but I, I, I gave up cricket. And um, yeah, I think I gave up on myself too. <laughs> um, that just didn't, didn't lead to anything, you know, I it was a good opportunity to kind of, you know, um, clinically get better and clinically um, work through my mental health issues. But once I found the love for cricket again, and also stuff outside of cricket, everything just kind of clicked again. And I was able to be where I'm at now up in Brisbane. Um, Well, I'm in the hub, but move up to Brisbane and, and play for Queensland. And yeah, I think if I never intentionally took that year off, I would have never had that opportunity to find out who I actually was. And mental health is a massive continuum. So there's always going to be times where I'm going to be very, really doubtful of myself or I'm going to think that I don't love the game or I'm going to think that things outside of cricket aren't working. But I think that I experienced that at 20 um, and was in such a dark place at 20 and knowing that I did get through it, it's 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 possible to continue to get through it. Um, so that was a really important lesson for me.
1: Where did you first find help, Michaela? Because, you know, there may be people listening to, to this conversation and they can relate to that analogy of walking through the room and it's all dark. Like wh- where did you first reach out and, and get help?
0: I think I thought I was reaching out for a long time. <laughs> I probably when I, when I first started experiencing depression I was probably about 15, 16 and I think I thought I was like I was asking for help but really I was just being a dickhead of a teenager in all honesty. <laughs> um, I was you know fighting with my parents um, you know being bad at school, all of those fun teenage things. Um, so I thought, I thought that was how to ask for help. (laughs) Um, it wasn't until I actually left school and I was playing professional cricket and my mental health got pretty serious, um, like pretty seriously bad that I actually had to, you know, I remember having a conversation with, the breakers sports psych like at the time and just saying, like, I've actually never said this to anyone before. I think I've tried to say it, but it's come out in the wrong light. But I actually am really struggling. And in that moment, I didn't want to be on this earth. And sorry, that's pretty deep, but that's how I felt. And I needed to express that. And that was really big of me to express that as, a, as an 18, 19-year-old. Um, and I think some people sh- still throughout their life struggle to, to be able to put their hand up and, and, and do that. And I think, I think it's important firstly, to lean on your support network. I think I look back and I wish I had just spoken to my parents a bit more and been less of a stubborn teenager, but that's why they love us. Like that's why our support network, our family, our friends, that's why they love us. And I think that's definitely always going to be a first port of call. And then a, and then a healthcare professional um, is definitely, you know, I think, I think people, urge, like, they immediately go to a doctor and expect the doctor to know what to do. But there's um, people that have spent, you know, decades at studying the human brain. Um, that's where we need to go and that's where the definite place to get help is, is with a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a counsellor. Yeah, that would definitely be my advice to anyone that is feeling like they're in a bit of a dark place, like I described.
1: That first conversation with the, the sports psychologist, it- cricket new south wales from that moment was it a weight off your shoulders did you have clarity in your life or did it did it take a lot of work you know you, you referenced medication and and just being more self-aware before you had that clarity in your life
0: mm. i remember walking away from that conversation and thinking that i was gonna i was just immediately gonna have clarity in my life and that's i can't think of a more unrealistic thought um, to have um mental health is a journey and and I think not Not until even the past 18 months have I really felt a real stability in my life and a real balance in my life. Um, I was severely struggling past that moment. I think, um, you know... I wasn't diagnosed by that particular psychologist actually when he referred me to a psychiatrist and he had like, I had this referral letter for ages and I never did anything with it. Like that's how unmotivated I was as a person at the time. Um, but it finally got to a point where I needed to go and, and see this psychiatrist and there I was diagnosed with severe anxiety and depression at the age of 19. And um, the psychiatrist had pretty much said that um, I'd had it since I was a teenager and, um, and so it's, it's not a, it's not an immediate, you do, there is a sense of relief knowing that it's been diagnosed and you are, and it's real. You're not stupid. <laughs> um, but there is a journey still after that. Um, you know, everybody's mental health journey can take longer, shorter, um, but it's a continuum. So you're always going to have ups and downs in your life. It's just what is, it is what it is. But um yeah, I definitely think it wasn't an immediate thing. It was something that I worked through for many, 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 many years, and I still, I still talk to my psychologist today. And you know, I'm a, foundationally I'm a pretty happy person these days. But um, you know, I still have my bad days, especially in this hub. I've had more bad days in this past five weeks, I reckon, than what I've had in the past twelve months. But <laughs> um, you know, it's it's foundationally I'm still pretty happy, and I'm still really happy with where I'm at in my life thanks to that journey, that mental health journey I took, um, you know, over the past couple of years.
1: Michaela, do you think cricket as a sport, whilst it's got so many beautiful elements to it, do you think that can compound things? And did it compound things for you? Because there's the pressure to perform. You can't hide. Your scores are up there. You know, if you get a duck, that's in front of everyone. If if you're bowling and you get hit around the park, like, did you find your self-worth was tied to your performances on the cricket field?
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I also have very recently felt the same. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very normal. Um, I think that's something I've, I've learnt recently is that it's actually very normal to, to, to fall into that headspace, whether it's the headspace that's correct to be in um, as a professional cricketer. Um, yeah, I think... I think it's really easy, especially um, – I'll take this hub, for example. We literally live and breathe cricket. I don't I don't think I've really been able to work out a strategy, maybe only really recently, but work out a, a strategy to, to cope when cricket's too much because all this hub is, like, you walk downstairs and it's, oh, welcome to the WBBL village and you're next door. Like, I'm literally – Next door is my captain, Jess Johnson, and our team room's down there. And we're always talking about cricket. We're always seeing each other from cricket. And we're always looking at our um, and eating dinner and having chats with our opposition and talking about cricket. So for me, it's like it's become my, my worth in here. Like it's it's I've let it become my my worth in here because I don't have anything else. Like I don't in here. I've told myself that I don't have anything else. I know that I do, but um, it's been extremely easy to fall into that trap in this hub. And so I've had to rebuild and, and come up with new ways to, to be able to identify myself as a person before a cricketer. And that's taken, that's been a massive challenge in here. And I think that's what I meant before when I said that um, there's been some challenges since being in here. So, um, you know, and I've definitely had conversations with other people in here that feel the exact same way. So knowing that I'm not alone in those thought processes is really cool. Um, but, yeah, I got to the point very early on in the hub where you know we'd only played four games and I said to my coach I'm like I'm not I'm not coping with this like I'm really not coping with this I'm not coping with thinking about cricket 24-7 I'm struggling to strategize um on how I can be more mentally stable but I'm not it's not happening and this is going to perfect my affect my performance and so I you know, I, I said to all the girls of one training session, I just, said, I'm just stepping away and I'm, I don't know how long it's going to be before I can play again, but I need to, this is a challenge and I need to give myself time. Um, so yeah, that, that was really hard for me and I've never, I've never done that before. And, um, like I said, foundationally, I'm a very, very happy person at the moment, but that doesn't mean I, I, I never struggle and that doesn't mean I never face challenges. Um, and I think it's it's the same for anybody. But hold on to that foundation of happiness. Hold on to who you are as a person. And it makes, it makes getting through the hard things easier.
1: What more do you think could be done, Michaela, for young female athletes specifically? I had a very, very similar conversation with Lisa Griffith on this podcast. You know, for her it was a five-year hiatus from the game in her early yeah. 20s is it the pressure is it the new to professionalism is it the expectation what more do you think can be done across all sports for young female athletes
0: that's a that's a really good question i think i think recognizing mental health has only become a really new thing in sport i'd love to be corrected on that but the, my feeling and my observation is it is that having a genuine interest and having genuine research into um, performance and mindset and well-being of an athlete has only really been a real new thing maybe in the past three to five years in sport so I think with with more research and with more um, with more people standing up and saying hey I've struggled with this or pressure gets to me I think it will get better when I say it I refer to the processes around. Enabling athletes to have a good well-being and a good um, mental, a good level of mental stability. But in saying that, I think it's the same for anyone in any workplace. To be honest, like I, I think mental health often gets shafted for worldly um, purposes and, and business corporation purposes. I think well-being and performance um, aren't linked in a lot of workplaces, and they need to be. It's just science. There is scientific evidence that people don't perform well when they they don't get enough sleep or they don't, um, you know, they're not socialising or their, their self-worth is this or their self-worth is that, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, I think I think there is more that can be done. At the same time, I just think it just needs to be a better level of understanding of that every person is different and not everyone is going to be able to be, um, you know, a Steve Smith and just go out and, and play cricket amazingly and just totally kill every um, opposition they come up against um, I think that's important to note is that not everyone's wide. There's a lot of people with really good ability. I think we see it a lot in NRL in particular where there's these players with some amazing ability, but their mental headspace isn't like their, their headspace and their well-being isn't lining up and therefore is detrimental to their performance. Um, so, yeah, I think as time goes on and as more people speak up and as there's more research done into mental health and wellbeing in general, it'll be a better better place from a level of um, being able to cope with pressure and, and not putting expectation on yourself as such a young kid, um, that kind of thing. I'm often having conversations with the young kids in this team about whether they're feeling pressure or whether they're excited or nervous or because I want to know if they like how they cope with it or if it's any easier in this day and age to cope and cope with it so yeah I think I think it's looking really positive in that space that's for sure
1: and for you Michaela you are doing some work with a not-for-profit in this space what does that involve
0: yeah, so I'm an ambassador with um, living.org. So um, basically their motto is it ain't weak to speak. Um, so, you know, that's that's really important for me, as I described, um, you know, opening up about my mental health for that first time was really um, imperative for my welfare, basically. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess for me, I kind of joined, linked up with them through once I was really kind of um, I think I linked up with them just before moving up to Brisbane. So I was in a pretty good head, like I'd, I'd really just created that headspace and really um, kind of discovered who I was and where I could go and what I could be and, and be content with that. So I was ready to talk about my experience with mental health and I was ready to help other people. With mental health issues and so that was a perfect um, partnership to kind of link up with them and say hey this has been my journey I'm still on a journey but if this if my story can help other people then that's gonna continue to help my journey because it's gonna make it worthwhile it's gonna it's gonna make all that all those head spaces that I was in all those bad thoughts and all, all everything it, it makes it so much more worthwhile when you know you can help someone else so yeah that's that's the work I've been doing in that space and there's some exciting things coming in that space in the next 12 months as well so um yeah yeah I think it's been absolutely awesome to kind of rep the living cause and um yeah I definitely think it's 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 a cause that everyone should get around.
1: Michaela you're a proud Kunja woman uh you discovered your aboriginal heritage in more recent years what mm-hmm. shifted that have in your perspective uncovering your family's history?
0: Yeah, I mean, we kind of always had an inkling about it. Um, We just never looked into it, I think, because there's obviously a lot of intergenerational injustice into um, the indigenous culture. A lot of my family didn't want to identify as that because it was easier not to, it was easier to live through life not not doing that. So I think I'm actually really um, lucky to be able to um, identify Um, and it's something me and my mum kind of really looked into because yeah, it was like we, I grew up, um, in a pretty ethnic school, Penrith Anglican College, um, a lot of Maltese, a lot of Greek, a lot of Italians, and everyone was really proud about where they were from, and oh yeah, my dad's Maltese, my mom's Italian, or you know, I'm Greek, I'm Greek Orthodox, I'm this and that, so everyone knew who they were, and I remember people would ask me, and I'd just be like, oh, I'm Australian, yeah, I'm Australian, they're like, no, but where are you from, and I'm like, oh, I'm just Australian. Growing up without that sense of identity and connection to my heritage was really hard and it took its toll. And I think, um, I think that's actually really helped me connect spiritually to who I am as a person. And I'm really thankful for that. I'm really thankful that, yeah, I'm now able to identify um, and be proud to be an indigenous woman. And I think, you know, my whole family's gotten around it a lot. And, um, you know, I guess I wish, I wish our family previously could have been more acknowledging of it which really sucks. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's definitely been an imperative part of me kind of gauging who and what I am. For any Indigenous person, you just grow such a massive spiritual connection to who you are and where
1: you're from. Do you kind of feel it's ironic, Michaela, that society, we're trying to push for reconciliation and the, the ironic part is for 60,000 years, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been living off the land, living in the present moment, living with a connected community, that having a connection to land and that's what society wants these days. Do you find yeah. that ironic that we're, we're always coming back to, to the important things that all these Aboriginal mobs and tribes lived and breathed for thousands and thousands of years?
0: Yeah, I, I would definitely say we're slowly coming back to it. Um, I think there's a long, a big shift that needs to happen in society from from my from my opinion um on it but yeah i definitely think that people are recognizing the injustices a lot more these days and and I, i guess that's promising however like i said there's still we're still a long way off having having a better or even a sound understanding of 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 what's so important about our indigenous culture like um, and, non-indig- and non-Indigenous people understanding that too. To be honest, my, my outlook on it is that, you know, I think we should be celebrating Indigenous culture a lot more than what we do as Indigenous Australians and as non-Indigenous Australians. Um, and we both need to listen, I think, not both, I'll rephrase that. I think as people living on the same land, we all need to listen to each other and understand each other a lot better. And, you know, people don't necessarily look at me and go, oh, you're Indigenous. Um, and I think a lot of people, um, I think a lot of Indigenous people have the same, same issue. So, you know, to step forward and say, you know, I'm Indigenous and identify, and then, you know, there's been times where I've been ridiculed for identifying. So, you know, there's a long way to go. There is a very long, long way to go and there's a long level of understanding that still needs to happen. However, there's a lot of good things happening in that space on a more positive note.
1: Obviously, hundreds, hundreds of challenging years for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but this year specifically we've seen a divisiveness around the world. Like whilst there's an element of acceptance in society, there's also that wedge being pushed down the middle and really creating that divisiveness around the world people listening to to our chat today what's what's one thing they can do to kind of get things moving in the right direction is it a matter of education is it a matter of of learning about their land that they're on what's one one thing I know there's a lot of things that need to be done but what's one thing that people can do to kind of start that process.
0: It definitely starts with education and I think that our government needs to be doing more in that space and us as citizens of Australia need to push that more. So I think that's the first thing is educating our, um, our youth about Indigenous heritage, Indigenous culture. Um, you know, I look back on my education and never were we really taught much about Indigenous heritage. Um, for an Indigenous person, I had the most uncultured upbringing. Um, through school and through family and it's really upsetting it's important to push for that education to happen and to push the importance of that education because our education system across the globe uh, across the country doesn't actually provide a platform for for the next generation to learn and understand which really sucks so I think that's where it begins but I also think as Indigenous Australians, we also need to take a step up and 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 probably respect that there are being things put in place to better this, to better this massive um, mess that was that was started the day that um, the land was taken from us. Um, um, yeah, it's it's really tricky, Johno. It's really really tricky. But I think yeah, I'll go back to it starting. Um, with our education system, and starting with just from both both sides of the coin, being better people, being better human beings.
1: Do you take the time, Michaela, to reflect on the journey to this point? You know, you look back at the past, say six years. It's been such a a roller coaster for you. You know, some tremendous highs, but some some really tough lows as well. Do you deliberately stop and look back on that journey?
0: Yeah, I think recently I've been forced to. <laughs> um, but I do I do look back on it. I often look back on the times where I didn't know what pressure was in cricket. I often look back at being a school kid and going to school and being told that I'd never get to go to university because I wasn't smart enough. Um, and, you know, I look at all the times I was probably told that I'd never amount to what I thought I could amount to or uh, that I'd never, nothing would eventuate eventuate of my aspirations. Um, I think that's the first thing I look back on because as crappy as it was to kind of be told that kind of thing, it's probably what helped me get here and it's probably why I'm still here. But also the core of that is um, that you know, it's, it's been a lifelong ambition of mine to be in the position that I'm in right now. And sometimes you do have to stop and smell the roses of the journey and go, it hasn't been all smooth sailing for me. Um, but how many lessons have I learned? How many life lessons have I learned through this cricket career? Like, I'm only 22 and I feel like I've learnt, you know, this this career's been six years long and I feel like I've learnt 20 years worth of, of life lessons. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think that's where I sit with that when I look back.
1: And do you believe in life that we find ourselves or that we create ourselves as people in the sense of, do you believe the path is laid out for people or that every decision you make shapes where you end up?
0: I think... I think that um, there's never no cert- there's never a certainty in where where your path is gonna be. Um, no one knows what tomorrow is gonna bring. no one can tell me that they know what tomorrow is gonna bring. Um, I definitely think you create you create your path and you've got to have ambition you've got to have um, passion you've got to have you got to take risks in order to construct that path. And, um, you know, I think people that just think the path's constructed for them are probably believers that, um, you know, that they don't need to take risks and that they don't need to, to expand and, and, you know, grow as a person. Um, sometimes I get scared of change, but nine times out of 10, I'm excited by change. And I think that's been the reason why I've probably played a few different clubs and tried a few different things career-wise. Um, so, you know, I think, I definitely think every decision you make in life is, is, is a piece of um, the journey and a piece of the path and that it's, it can always change direction. It can always take twists and turns. Um, and that there's no, there's no end goal to that path either. That path doesn't end. And I think that's something as athletes we get caught up in because we go, oh, my ultimate goal is to play for Australia and then you never really think beyond that. So, yeah, yeah, I guess that's that's my take on it.
1: Michaela, you mentioned to me before the show that you love for cricket. You, you said, I love being competitive. It allows me to do that. It takes me away from my outside struggles. It's my oasis and my happy place. Would you change it? Would you change your journey? Would you change the life up until this point? Again, there's been some highs and lows, but are you happy with where you're at?
0: Yeah, I I think this this competition has been one of the most challenging things I've experienced in my career. Not the most challenging, but one of. But I sit with the perspective, I can't wait to see what I am capable of after this because I've learned so much about myself through through this tournament, through this hub situation. That's the mindset I've got at the moment and I definitely, through the highs and lows, would not regret a thing. I often think oh why haven't I given it up by now but I still wake up every day and I'm still here I'm still doing it and I'm enjoying it like I really am so sometimes you've just got to keep it that simple um and I think I'm really good at complicating everything in life but to keep it simple and and to yeah not have regrets um I wouldn't regret a thing
1: Michaela thank you so much for such a a candid and honest conversation but also really educational conversation and appreciate your, your time being on the Passion and Perspective podcast wishing you all the best.
0: Thanks John. I've really appreciated the chat I'm really keen to um to see who else you get on this podcast um especially that I'm a very proud proud Penrith girl so yeah thanks for having me I'm really really stoked to have been a part of it. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and proudly presented by the Western Weekender.